0: Celebrate the launch of David Rothkoff's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29 but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the podcast. I'm your host David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington D.C. I am joined today by our friend Dahlia Lithwick of Slate Magazine, of Amicus Podcast, of her great book *Lady Justice*, which is a runaway bestseller, and later today of my sister's podcast.
1: <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Hi, David.
0: No, no, this will will not be anywhere nearly as entertaining as my system, and it seldom is. Today, the reason we are talking is that there's been a variety of kinds of legal news. But while a lot of the attention has been drawn to Trump legal cases and so forth, it seems to me that this Supreme Court case that uh, was heard yesterday is potentially extremely significant. I know you followed it. Perhaps you could describe it in a nutshell, and why you think it's significant.
1: It's not just me that thinks it's significant. I think that Michael Ludig, former judge Ludig, who you may recall, almost got Chief Justice John Roberts seated at the court. He was on the short list. Uh, he was also the person who told Mike Pence maybe not to decertify the election right before. January 6th happens. This is a conservative stalwart, you know, one of the most well-respected minds of the conservative legal movement. He has said it's the most consequential democracy case, you know, ever and certainly of our lifetimes. And this is a case that fundamentally, if the court were to accept the theory that I'm about to explain, would alter forever the way elections are administered and the way you check elections that are administered lawlessly. So this is a a big deal. And it's also, I think, as you suggested, lined up next to Mar-a-Lago and lined up next to, you know, the Trump org and lined up against other legal news. It's so abstract. So it's been hard to kind of have people understand how really salient it is. The very shortest version is that the state of North Carolina Uh, And its Republican legislature put together crazy gerrymander. We've got a 50-50 state. It was 10 Republican seats to the Democrats. The state constitution prohibits that kind of gerrymander, political partisan gerrymander. The state Supreme Court struck it down under state constitutional law and said, make new maps. Republican legislature said, nope, and took it to the Supreme Court. Essentially, their argument is there is no checking function on the state legislature. They have what's called plenary or exclusive power on all elections uh, proceedings. And no matter what they do, it cannot be checked by state courts. That's the argument that was argued yesterday at the Supreme Court.
0: And the consequence of it would be that... uh state legislatures could act with impunity and recklessly and in ways that undercut democracy and they would not be challengeable by state Supreme Courts. Right.
1: And with the caveat that you may remember a couple of years ago in a case called Rucho, the Supreme Court said, by the way, we as the Supreme Court don't get in the business of partisan gerrymandering either. In other words, the U.S. Supreme Court has announced This is, quote unquote, non-justiciable. This is not an issue they're going to touch. Partisan gerrymandering, by the way, in Rucho, the court says, but don't worry, you can always take it to your state Supreme Court. So this would essentially take that other check, the state Supreme Court, out of the picture.
0: Let's let's take a step back. This sounds crazy. (laughs) It sounds completely out of step with the way our system works with checks and balances and judicial oversight and so forth. But nonetheless, the uh, right-wing majority on the court, led by, once again, Justice Alito, seemed sympathetic, did they not?
1: Very sympathetic. We should note, I guess just to do the doctrine for a quick section. second, you're right, David, it's just crazy. It's not rooted in constitutional history. It's not rooted in constitutional text. There's no... 233 years of doctrine around this. This is kind of fashioned out of whole cloth by a conservative legal movement. I should say it's rooted in an opinion in Bush v. Gore that then Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote in a concurrence, right? Didn't get five votes, got three votes. And they're holding that out as though that is like the law of Bush v. Gore. There's no there there. And the other piece of doctrine that's worth just flagging Is that this is, there's two uh, elections related clauses in the Constitution the Elector's Clause and the Elections Clause. This appeal is the Elections Clause that says that, you know, the state legislature can set the time, place, and manner of elections subject to congressional uh, approval. So what they're basically saying is everybody didn't see for 233 years what we now see, which is that this means that no one else can check, not the governor and not the state Supreme Court. And you're also right that Justice Alito is gung-ho for this. We actually have already four justices of the Supreme Court, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, who in earlier iterations of this case have signaled approval for this independent state legislature doctrine, and Justice Kavanaugh in an earlier iteration who said it's a hard, tough question. So we actually have not one, not two, not three, but four justices who look like they're already in the tank for this novel theory that has no basis in history.
0: And do we have any idea where the chief justice is? We actually
1: is? know where the chief justice is because in a, again, earlier version of this same case, when it came down on the shadow docket this spring, the chief justice voted with the liberals. And it was pretty evident yesterday at argument that he thinks this is nutty. And I think I can also say, given that everybody was watching Amy Coney Barrett, if the hypothesis is right, that there's already four folks who love this, Justice Barrett did not intimate yesterday at oral argument that she's all in for this. She suggested she had real problems with it, and she pushed the attorney who was pressing this argument for the Republicans of North Carolina Legislature. Pushed him really hard. So, so to the extent that there's a silver lining here, one, it's not clear to me they have five. It's not clear to me that Barrett's there. Not even clear to me, by the way, that Justice Kavanaugh is there, at least for the maximalist extreme view of this. But also, I was really, really struck by the fact that there was no way that the lawyer who was arguing this seemed credible under any set of facts. I mean, he was just not good and the conservative justices the three who really love this idea weren't really able to bolster what he was saying.
0: Does that matter anymore? No,
1: probably not. And and also uh, parenthetically, we have seen Justice Barrett do this chin stroking before. I mean, we've seen her look as though she's in play only to side time and time again with the conservative supermajority. So I don't want to give false hope. I think what I do want to say is that given every opportunity To slightly cabin or minimize the argument he was making, the lawyer for North Carolina's Republicans in the legislature couldn't do it. In other words, he was like, go big or go home. I'm asking for the moon. And it just seemed to me that both Kavanaugh and Roberts, and I think seemingly Barrett, waiting for him to do something sane, didn't
0: hear anything sane. Let's imagine for a moment that they find or this guy who you thought, you know, didn't make his case. And this independent state legislature thing, it would seem to me as big a blow towards democracy as we've had, because this North Carolina case that you talked about literally said, you know, it says, you know, that we are going to treat half our state to four seats and the other half to, sit, you know, 10 or whatever it is. And it's, it's, it, you know, if, if they can do it, anybody can. And there is no check except apparently the Congress. And so long as you have Republicans controlling one house of Congress, they're not going to fix it.
1: I'm going to read you, I thought the most important question of the day, there were good days, all, good questions all around, but this was Elena Kagan, I think, mapping out where this could go. And I'm just going to directly quote her comment uh, in the argument. She said, this is a theory with big consequences. It would say that if a legislature engages in the most extreme form of gerrymandering, there is no state constitutional remedy, even if the courts think that's a violation of the Constitution. It would say legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of voter protections that the state constitution, in fact, prohibits it might allow the legislatures to insert themselves and to give themselves a role in the certification of elections and the way election results are calculated. So in all these ways, I think what might strike a person is that this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way governmental decisions are made in this country. So what she is in effect saying is exactly what you just said, which is if you bless this, You are going to see, and let's just note that 30 of the 50 states have red state controlled legislatures because of years of gerrymandering. 30 out of the 50 states will just go hog wild on voter suppression, on gerrymandering, on we're just going to stop Sunday voting, we're going to stop mail in balloting, right? There's nothing that can be done. The most pernicious fear, and I think Justice Kagan was flicking at it, is that under the Electors Clause, the other provision, in the constitution that said that's that suggests here that states also have plenary power over who to certify as the electors, they can do what Trump was asking folks to do in Georgia in 2020, right? What they were asking people to do in Arizona. Just make up a fake slate of electors and send them to send them to the vice president. So you're quite right. The implications are not just congressional elections. It's also fake slates of electors and under the electoral count act which is that fossilized terrible statute that determines how electors are are counted there's huge gaps that could allow that to happen so this has the potential to be catastrophic at every level and again to the extent that i saw only really <laughs> alito and thomas and gorsuch psyched about the catastrophe It wasn't as terrible as it could have been, and I know that when you hear me say it wasn't as terrible as it could have been, it's like, hey, Supreme Court, stop punching me in the face. But it really didn't feel like there was a lot of enthusiasm for this absolutely maximalist view.
0: Okay, we'll keep an eye out and uh, rely on the wisdom of Amy Amy Coney Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, which even as I say it makes me kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit. There was another case in the Supreme Court this week in which a web designer said, Well, if somebody came to me and said, design a website for a gay wedding, I don't believe in that. So I'm not going to do it. And, you know, there again, the right in the court seems sort of sympathetic to the idea. And the right wing seems to be presenting this as a free speech issue. In other words, you know you're entitled if you're creative to decline your services to people who have views that you may not agree.
1: If this sounds familiar to people, this is part 2 of Masterpiece Cake Shop. That was the this is also a Colorado case. That was the Colorado baker who didn't want to bake a cake f- to celebrate a same-sex wedding. He said it violated his religious beliefs. And folks may remember that that case got all the way to the Supreme Court on two grounds, right? On these speech grounds, right? Cake baking is an artistic, creative enterprise. I'm speaking with my frosting. And two, and there I managed to say frosting. Good. Okay. Um, and the second claim was this religious dissenter claim, right? I cannot be forced to do something against my First Amendment uh, religion uh, protections And Justice Kennedy kind of split the baby on this case because he essentially punted and said, on the one hand, state public accommodations laws really matter. Only about half the states have public accommodations laws. They matter, right? If you hang out a shingle and say you're doing business, you serve all comers, that's what the public accommodations laws protect, and that you can't discriminate based on race or gender or disability or LGBTQ status. But, said Justice Kennedy, I don't really like how the commission talked to the baker. Uh, they, they kind of insulted him. So the case was a wash. So now it comes back. And as you say, it's now been completely retrofitted <laughs> so that it will win. So A, we don't have just Justice Kennedy anymore. We have this conservative supermajority. And B, we've stripped away the religion part of this case. It's just a speech case. And as you said, it's entirely speculative because Lori Smith who is the web designer in this case, who makes websites for all sorts of things, has never made a wedding website. She's certainly never made a wedding website and then denied services to same-sex couples. She just wants to make wedding websites and wants to deny services to same-sex couples. And the important part of that is that there are no faces on the other side of this case, right? We have no Charlie and Dave the way we had in Masterpiece Cake Shop. No one is facing discrimination. And as you said, the 10th Circuit heard this case. It went up to the Supreme Court. There are no facts. There is no record. So what the Supreme Court spent the day doing on Monday was just sort of spitballing, hypos. And the hypos, David, were gross, right? We were talking about Ashley Madison. We were talking about J-Date. Ha, ha, ha. We were talking about a mall Santa Claus, black Santa Claus in the mall who doesn't want to sit next to black children in KKK wrote, like the whole thing became this kind of funny thought experiment about denial of services without any recognition that there are actually dignitary interests on the other side. I have no silver lining for this one. I think that my sense of it was that the court conservatives absolutely believe that there is going to, for the first time ever, be a carve out to public accommodations laws for people who are engaged in creative expression. And we're going to fight about whether that includes the florist and whether that includes, in one of the hypotheticals, the person who brings the chairs to the wedding. Does that person engaged in some kind of creative speech act? But I don't think there's any question that there's going to be a carve-out. And so the short answer is not only will this be really disastrous for gay couples in states. And as I said, not all states have public accommodations laws. So a lot of states you already didn't have these protections. There's no federal protection against this kind of discrimination. So not only are LGBTQ folks going to face, I think, discrimination, it's also going to, in my view, because there's no principal distinction between denying services because of your religious objections or because you don't want to do this on the basis of race or disability or gender that I think this is going to open the floodgates for people to end-run public accommodations laws and just say it violates their strongly held beliefs.
0: Even though the Congress this week seems to be passing a Marriage Equality Act, it says that all the states have to recognize marriages, no matter who they're
1: It it will do that. It will afford protections to marriages— even in states that don't recognize same-sex marriages, but it will not stand in place of public accommodations laws. It's not going to do the work of, you know, protecting folks from discrimination by businesses. And as I said, time and time again in the argument, when asked by Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, by Sonia Sotomayor, by Elena Kagan, how is this different from famous civil rights cases where people would not serve, you know, blacks unless they went round the back way and took out their food from a, a window and said, this is not discrimination. We're just not letting you sit in our restaurant. There's no answer. The answer seemed to, to be, well, because that's racist. <laughs> that's not actually a constitutional answer.
0: Yeah. So I, when I was talking in a prior podcast about, you know, everybody's sort of euphoria last election. It doesn't impede the Supreme Court from being a nemesis of democracy for decades.
1: I, I mean, I think here's where I give you the answer that is exactly the shape of that big sigh you started that question with. And the answer is, if we don't think about structural court reform, we are going to live under the thumb of this court for a very long time. And, you know, you can talk about whether that's term limits. You can talk about whether that's stripping the court of jurisdiction. You can talk about whatever, you know, packing the court ethics rules. Right now, there's a hearing going on about imposing trivial ethics requirements on a Supreme Court that does not have any binding ethics rules. All of those things can happen but you're quite right if we can't have a robust public conversation <laughs> about what we're going to do about the court it's not just david that they're out of control stipulated right you and i've been having this conversation for some time it's that they're emboldened i mean the pedal to the metal here this is not a court that's doing one or two big cases a year the way we used to see this is a court that's doing 12 big cases a year and feels that it has complete impunity to do what it wants so Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. We can talk about, phew, we dodged a bullet in the midterms. But if this is a court that is hellbent on Shelby County and Brnovich and voter suppression and now Moore v. Harper, the independent state legislature theory, if the court is okay with that, this is a court that is systematically subverting voting. And if we don't figure that out, all the midterms in the world don't get us out of this.
0: Well, it's also striking. I mean, you know, you've been writing about this for a while, and there are just a few things that come up on a regular basis, you know, stare decisives, precedent. That doesn't seem to matter.
1: Post-Dobbs, I think stare decisive. You know, I was thinking today, just as I was watching the ethics hearings and the defense that the court offers is, you know, sure, there are ethics rules and statutes and canons that bind every other Article Three judge. We consult them. They're advisory. They're not binding on us. I think they feel the same way about Starry decisis. We consult it. It's advisory. It's not binding.
0: And we can use it. Or we can ignore all of it and go back to, what's this guy's name? Oh, Matthew, Matthew Hill. Hill. He
1: came up yesterday in the hearings again. The witch burner. He's, <laughs> yeah.
0: Some 17th century judge. Yeah. Well, he's the guy. Yeah. I mean, it's really rabbits out of a hat, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of, Grace. Well,
1: it's interesting. I will say to the extent, again, I'm, 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 I'm fumbling around for false hope and you're rejecting every time I give you like an offering, a tribute. Here's some false hope. I will say all the historians in this case, much as they were in the gun case, are just on the side of this is insane. I mean, there's no meaningful histori- historical evidence. Now we're talking about the independent state legislature case supporting this. In fact, the document they use is a fraud. They have one document that seems to bolster their theory, and it's been disproven. So I think that you have all the historians, all of them, even conservative, like I said, like Judge Ludig, Stephen Calabresi, co-founder of the Federalist Society, is on the side of the angels in this case. It's wingnuts. It's John Eastman who are on the other side. And so the part of me that—and by the way, Neil Cadiel, former Solicitor General Cadiel, who was arguing this case yesterday— name-checked every single one of those conservative luminaries at least once, sometimes twice, just to be like, as you will see in this brief or that brief, and then persistently name-checked everyone that is supposed to be a leading light for the conservative movement. Whether that induces them to pump the brakes, I can't say.
0: But you might think that, you know, that kind of rational thought would lead to Supreme Court justice suggesting to his wife that she not be involved in overthrowing the government, right? You know, you might think that these justices should not leak information to bolster their case. they just, I mean, it seems to me that they've just, like, thrown a band, you know, thrown a band into the wind. They're just like, we're going to do whatever we want because we can't.
1: So this actually brings me back, if I may, to court packing for a second, because we one of the reasons I think everybody is afraid to say those two words, court packing, or as you might more genteelly say, expanding the court, which works better. Everybody immediately goes into this like rictus face, terrorized, like Gah, FDR, right, that the most popular president in history almost destroyed his presidency. Over court packing, right? And the public was laughing at him and everybody hated him. And that's the end of the story. That's why we can't talk about it. It's sometimes useful to remember that his court packing plan, while it didn't work, seems to have produced what historians called the switch in time that saved nine, right? Suddenly you had conservative justices retiring, other conservative justices flipping and supporting New Deal legislation that they'd been blocking. So there is at least a plausible argument that in the face of a runaway juristocracy, (laughs) you stand up to them because they might at least get the signal that you're serious. And I see absolutely no evidence of standing up to them from the left. I just see us like wringing our hands and saying what to do, what to do. So my view on this is like, go nuclear, do it all, say it all, talk about court expansion, talk about ethics rules.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it seems to me if I were in charge, which I'm not, but if you were in charge, which would be even better, I would suggest go after Clarence Thomas's issues, go after Kavanaugh's issues, go after Alita's issues, look into the Kennedy thing, because those things are all worthy of exploration, and we should be enforcing that. At the same time, if we have 13 circuits it used to be there were nine judges for you know that each Supreme Court justice had a circuit. It's it sort of makes sense to have one judge per circuit. So why don't you have thirteen judges? And so I went, why don't you just try all these things? I mean, Mitch McConnell said, "Hey, we're not going to approve your guy for a year and a half," you know, and and everybody's like, "Oh, you can't do that." And he's like, "Yeah, I'm doing."
1: And, it. and and for me, the single dopiest argument against doing any kind of court reform is that Mitch McConnell will do it to us when they're in power, to which my response is, dude, they already did it to us when they were in power. That's why we got, you know, no Merrick Garland seat. That's why we got Brett Kavanaugh. That's why we got Amy Coney Barrett after voting had started in a presidential election in violation of the Mitch McConnell, like thinking that like, oh, we should hold our powder because we don't want them to like do anything lawless and unconstrained is so totally bananas. So I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to sort of beat the gong for having courage in the face of a what my friend Leah Littman at Michigan calls the hashtag YOLO court, because otherwise, you know, we're just going to lay down in front of the steamroller. And I, I'm not prepared to do that.
0: Since Bush v. Gore and through Merrick Garland, you know, if Al Gore had been president of Merrick Garland. They've been on the Supreme Court. Our lives would all be much, we'd be talking about different stuff, right? But uh,
1: tiny silver lining, if I may. Last one I'm going to give you. You can just bat it away like a goalie in a net. Although I don't know if a goalie bats away a silver lining. What I was going to say is that I think that Dobbs and Bruin, the guns case last year, and the EPA case, woke people up, David. I think a lot of people who are sitting around saying, I love the court. It's my friend. It's still the Warren court. It gave us Obergefell, kind of woke up in June and said, how is it possible that 10% of the population wants these outcomes and we keep keep having to accept them? And I think a lot of people who were not focused on the court.
0: Absolutely right. Well, look, I'm going to, because I'm polite, but also because I respect you and also I'd rather end on a high note. I'm gonna take your silver lining or silver hockey button or whatever that was and uh and uh, say, yes, let's 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 uh sort of seize on the notion that this crazy court is actually getting people to realize the damage a crazy court can do and maybe they'll fix it. Well, I've really enjoyed this, as I always do, and uh, I'm sure we will circle back to you. And in the meantime, I know that you will go off to the Secret Life of Cookies this afternoon, my sister's podcast, for those of you who don't listen to it, where people like Dahlia will talk about the world, but also bake. What are you bake?
1: I actually, because I'm a salty, not sweet person, I uh, did a little special pleading, and I'm making tadig, which is Persian rice. Uh, which is a huge rice crispy cookie, and bless her, your sister has allowed it and is permitting it, and so we will be making Persian rice
0: that sounds cool <laughs> and uh, I, I well, I look forward to hearing how that turns out, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.